Uh, we seem to be in the middle of a retreat, and um, in the previous days, <clears throat> we've been discussing Buddha activity. as uh, what we call in some Zen temples, Zazen. So most of you heard the term Zazen before, right? So in this retreat, I'm sort of saying that what I mean by Zazen is Buddha activity. And I, <clears throat> I also brought up some statements like, each moment of Buddha activity, each moment of Buddha activity imperceptibly accords with all things. And it could turn that, that in each moment of Buddha activity, there is an imperceptible accord with all things. And uh, another thing we can say is that in each moment of Buddha activity, or not in, just each moment of Buddha activity is the same practice or even more literally, it's equally the same practice and the same enlightenment of each individual person and all beings. Also, I've said over and over, Buddhas are Buddha activity. It isn't like there's a Buddha and something else called Buddha activity. Buddhas are the activity of Buddhas. There's not like some Buddha which is in addition to the uh, imperceptible minute and intimate accord with all beings. That is Buddha activity. How do we know about this, maybe this Buddha activity? which is imperceptible. But before I tell you how we know it, I'll tell you um, that when Buddha activity is truly Buddha activity, it doesn't think, oh, this is Buddha activity. However, it is Buddha activity and the ongoing Buddha activity. When Buddha activity is truly Buddha activity, it doesn't, I said it doesn't think this is Buddha activity. Another translation is it doesn't necessarily think it. When Zazen is truly Zazen, it doesn't think, oh, this is Zazen. And yet there is the actualization of this Zazen 
and going, and that actualization, actualization is ongoing. So now, the Buddha activity doesn't think, doesn't necessarily think this is Buddha activity. So how does Buddha activ- How is Buddha activity known? It's known by Buddha activity. It's not known from outside looking over at it. Because the activity and the knowing are the same thing. And uh, yeah, yesterday I, I brought up the thing about uh, children pl- playing jump rope. Like when two children hold the end of the ropes, usually it's two at the end, but there could be 10 at the end of each one. But anyway, let's say two kids are holding a rope and spinning it, and other kids go and enter the swinging rope and jump over it. When you're truly jumping rope, you do not necessarily think, I'm jumping rope. But when you're truly jumping rope, you do know how to jump rope. And you do know that you're jumping rope, and the knowing of the jumping rope is called jumping rope. If you don't know how to jump rope, then, you know, temporarily, you're kind of like get hit by the rope or fall down or go home. But when you're actually jumping rope, you, that is knowing how to jump rope. That's, not, that's knowing how to, and that is knowing rope jumping. However, it is, sometime, it is possible while jumping rope to think, my God, I'm jumping rope. I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. And now I'm jumping rope. I'm a successful rope jumper. <laughs> you can do that. It's OK. <laughs> but it's not necessary. And if you happen to be Buddha activity, which is also if you happen to be a Buddha, or if you happen to be Zazen, it's OK. You can think, I'm Zazen. About 40 years ago, somebody uh, paid me a great compliment. It was around the time we first moved to Green Gulch, which actually is like 47 years ago. And I was moving from Tassajara to Green Gulch. And somebody at Green Gulch said, Mr. Zazen's coming. (laughs) That's really a nice thing to say. (laughs) When you're practicing Zazen, you are Zazen. You're Ms. Zazen or Mr. Zazen when you're practicing Zazen. There's not, they're not two different things. You and Zazen. <clears throat> but you can also, like, oh, I, I, I know I'm practicing Zazen. Fine. That's your individual karmic mind. I'm practicing Zazen. That's okay. So we have this, in Zazen, in Buddha activity, everybody's involved. And the practice that everybody is involved with, it's the same practice for everybody. The practice we're all involved in is one practice and one enlightenment. And it's the same for all of us. And 
And each one of us has our own zazen too, our own karmic perspective on it. And another image that we've been bringing up is the image of a loom. And the loom has, uh, is upright. It's a frame. And it has maybe vertical threads. And the loom is the same. The loom doesn't change. But each event, each phenomena that arises in the moment can be worked into that loom so that each thread is integrated with the same practice and the same enlightenment. And another phrase is that um, this great activity of Buddhas, which is releasing living beings from their deluded consciousness without moving a particle of deluded consciousness, without changing the deluded consciousness, making it a little bit better, or a lot better, or worse, without doing anything to it, this great activity occurs of it being released, of it being freed, of it being at peace, and realizing that this deluded individual consciousness is involved in a practice with all beings. And that practice with all beings liberates this individual consciousness. Also want to use the example of like some little kids, you know, they're standing around or walking around and somebody puts on music and they start going. Nobody tells them, they just start moving with the music and sometimes they look like they're dancing. But they don't think, I'm dancing. But they are. And the adults are watching them and say, hey, look, they're dancing. And even if they've never seen anybody dance before, they just start moving with the music. And they sometimes seem to be really good with it. And, but they don't necessarily think, I'm good at moving with the music, even though they are from some perspective. That's the way we are actually all day long. We're moving with the music. And we might think, hey, <laughs> I'm like imperceptibly according with all things. <laughs> this is like great. I now recognize Buddha activity. That's okay. And it's optional. It's an option which some highly realized people almost never think of. And some other people who are less highly evolved think of a lot. But it, the thing you recognize as the dancing, what you're recognizing as the accord with all things, that's not the accord itself. It's a, it's a looking at it. But the accord isn't looking at itself. 
necessarily, although it can, but the looking at itself isn't the accord. And this is hard for us to, you know, to really fully understand that and accept that. Uh, someone reminded me that last year when I came here, the topic of the retreat was something about listening to the cries of the world, or something like that. Is that right? Okay. So I brought that up again this time, right? So I propose to you that everybody is calling you and me. We are being called to compassion. Everybody is calling us to compassion. And all the, all the uh, phenomena within our own mind are calling for compassion. For example, I'm calling you for compassion right now. Did you know that? I mean, before I said it, now I told you, you know. I actually am calling you to be compassionate to me forever, without getting into it forever. What do you think of that? Any comments on me calling you all to be greatly compassionate to me? Any comment on that? Yes? Nice? You feel good about that, that call? Yes. Why are you calling for compassion? I do not know. <laughs> it's just, it's actually what I am. I'm a, I'm a compassion caller. Also, everybody's calling me to be compassionate. Why? I don't know. But I think it's because you're callers. Your, your nature is that you're calling for compassion. But I don't know why you're that way. I don't know why reality is the way it is. When I was a kid, there was another song called, I don't know why I love you like I do. I don't know why. I just do. The reality of me calling you and you calling me and me listening to you and you listening to me, that's, that's a, another way to talk about imperceptible mutual accord. Imperceptibly according is that we're calling to each other and we're listening to each other. However, we, you, you, some of you didn't know I was calling you before I, before I perceptively told you. Is that right? Some of you didn't know I was calling you? Yeah, now you know. But I, I gave you a way to perceive it by giving you those words. But after I stopped talking, the call was still there, but you can't hear it all the time. At the beginning, we also did this chant, which is, I, it, it, the original chant was written by Eihei Koso, Dogen Zenji. The original is, I vow from this life, 
on throughout countless lives to hear the true Dharma. And I changed the translation to we for group recitation. Also because some of the people who are reciting might say, wait a minute, I'm not saying I'm doing that. I'm not bowing to hear the true Dharma. Wait a minute. So maybe the we's a little softer. Maybe the other people are going to do it, but not me. Anyway, uh, we vow, and maybe I vow, to hear the true Dharma. And again, I may have said it last year, when you listen to a cry, when you listen to a, a cry of pain, you might not understand that that's the Dharma. This is a, this is a, the Dharma is being delivered to you by all, all beings are delivering you the Dharma and all beings are calling to you for compassion. And their call for you to compassion is like, please be compassionate to me so that you can hear the Dharma. If you learn how to be compassionate to me, you will hear the Dharma in my cry. If you learn how to look at my face, which might look in pain or might not, but my face is saying, look at me with compassion. If you, if you learn to do that, you'll see the Dharma in my face. And seeing the Dharma in my face, you'll also see how we are Buddha activity. Seeing the Dharma, you will see how you are Buddha activity, and I am Buddha activity, and we are Buddha activity. Fundamentally, we are Buddha activity. But that activity also appears in limited forms that are calling for compassion and liberation. And if we learn to listen to them, we'll see that is what they're calling for, and if we give it wholeheartedly, we'll see also they're not only calling, they're also listening, and they're delivering the Dharma to us. I also had a thought I wanted to share with you. May I? <clears throat> the thought is, jumping rope calls for compassion. And jumping rope is calling for compassion. I never thought that before I thought that. But I just said everything is calling for compassion, didn't I? That includes jumping rope is calling for compassion. And there's one way is Jumping rope calls for compassion, as in, jumping rope requires compassion. And the other one is, jumping rope is calling for compassion, as in, making a request. Jumping rope is making a request of us. 
to practice compassion, which means jumping rope is requesting for us to be generous to rope jumping, which means be generous to our playmates and generous to the rope and its movement and gravity and our body. All these things, if we're not generous with them, the lack of generosity forestalls the rope jumping. But when we're really generous, we're getting ready to do the rope jumping. But also we need to be careful, ethical, tender. Not try to get rid of the rope or get rid of their, our playmates and so on. Respect the rope. Don't say bad things and don't slander the rope. <laughs> don't put yourself above the rope. Or, you know, be careful of the rope and be patient with the rope and be patient with the rope jumping because maybe you're not quite there yet. And be diligent with rope jumping. All these practices of compassion are there when children are jumping rope together. They're practicing, they're learning compassion by twirling the rope for the other kids and by waiting their turn and by paying attention and giving, 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 giving. It's right there. Really what's going on is zazen. Rope jumping is really zazen. Rope jumping is really Buddha activity. Everything is really Buddha activity. And if we practice compassion with rope jumping, we can wake up to Buddha activity. And again, we know it by the splendid activity called rope jumping. And we're very happy to do that. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say before I call on, let's see, his name is Connor, I think. <clears throat> and that is, this, this Buddha activity, I think I told you, right, that it has this, this function of liberating beings so they may dwell in peace and harmony. Heard that before? That, that's one of the functions of it, is to liberate deluded consciousnesses so they can live in harmony with other liberated, deluded consciousnesses. And also the unliberated ones, the nasty ones that haven't been liberated and are complaining about their lack of liberation, or other people's actually lack of liberation. <laughs> That's the function. That's what's really going on. And, we, and by practicing compassion, we, we awaken to it. And being liberated from deluded consciousness is similar to being liberated from history. It's historical, it's historical transcendence. Because our, our uh, yeah, our karmic consciousness is, is historical karmic consciousness. And the proposal is that really what we're in, what's going on here is we're in the process of liberating beings from history. 
from our own history, individual, what we've done and what's happened for us, and also the history of all beings. There's a possibility of being liberated from history. But again, it's not by moving history around that we get liberated. It's by being compassionate to it. And the proof of the pudding of historical transcendence is historical accountability. So when you're really free of your karmic consciousness, you're willing to be karmic consciousness accountable. If you're free of your karmic, if you're free of your karmic history, you're willing to be interrogated about it open-endedly. It's not like, okay, I'm free of my karmic consciousness now. Leave me alone. I'm free. No need to talk about this anymore. But if you're really free, you're okay with people asking you questions about how you're free, and if you're really free, and if you're free, how come you did that? You're willing, you're willing to be called to account And part of the being called to account is being asked to account for how you don't look like you're free. That would be one way to be accounted. People could also say, well, tell us about how you're free. And tell us about how that, what you just did is freedom. And show us that we can call you to account indefinitely. Because if you're free, we would be able to call you to account indefinitely. Because you wouldn't mind. Because you're free. You could spend the rest of your life being accounted, calling to account for your history. That's one of the nice things about freedom, is you're willing to deal with not being free. All things are calling for compassion, and all things are listening. But if you don't practice calling and listening, you don't realize it. So, you know, right now you're listening to me. I told you I wanted you to, and you're doing it. But if you don't notice that you're listening to me, and if you don't notice that you're listening to me with compassion, then you might miss that you might not realize that you're listening to me with compassion. If you don't listen to me generously and tenderly and patiently, you won't realize that you already are listening to me generously and patiently and diligently and tenderly. So the funny thing about us is that we are the way we are, but if we don't practice the way we are, we don't realize the way we are. Part of the, <laughs> the thickness of the human plot <laughs> is that the way the Buddha, the, the Buddha activity is all pervading. There's no place it doesn't reach. But if you don't practice, you don't see that. You don't understand that. If you don't practice it when you're jumping rope, if you don't practice it when people are asking you questions, you don't notice that you're practicing it, that you, that you are that. You are listening to everybody. But, you know, if you don't listen to me and yourself, then that's a moment of missing out on realizing it. And again, the more you realize it, the more you practice it. And the more you practice it, 
the more you realize it. You realize it by practice. So not understanding is, is, a, is a thread that we work into. The, the, we, we contribute our not understanding to the fundamental situation, which doesn't change. Our not understanding is always changing. The way I don't understand today is not the way I didn't understand yesterday. My deluded thoughts today are different from my deluded thoughts yesterday. But my deluded thoughts are actually woven in with freedom from deluded thoughts. And the freedom from deluded thought is basically always the same. And it's, it's always upright and free and totally realizing reality of, that we're working together. But if I think we're not working together, I, take that, I want to take that thought and bring it into the loom, integrate my thought that we're not cooperating with the teaching that basically we are. But the way we're not cooperating is, generally speaking, as far as I know, the way we're not cooperating is a perception. We can perceive how we're not cooperating. We can, we can perceive how other people are like, not so good. And, the, and, then, and then we change our mind. Our mind, the mind changes, and we perceive something different. And that perceptible realm is in accord with a, is in accord with a non-perceptible realm, a realm we can't perceive, where all the different perceptions are in accord with each other. So we use our perceptions that we're not in accord as opportunities to practice compassion and discover accord in the non-accord, to discover the imperceptible in the perceptible. So right in the perceptible is the imperceptible, and right in the imperceptible is the perceptible. We can't, it's, it's hard for me to be compassionate. So let's just say it's hard. Anyway, it's a little bit hard to understand how to be compassionate with, for me with harmony. But it's easier for me to be, understand how to be compassionate to disharmony, to pain. So by being compassionate to disharmony, which I, can, which I have perceptions of, I discover harmonies right in it. By being compassionate to all the differences, because perceptions are different, by being compassionate to all the different perceptions, the door of the sameness opens, and you see all the perceptions are the same. There, each perception is the same practice and the same enlightenment as all the other perceptions. Each person is the same enlightenment and the same in practice as all beings. By practicing compassion with difference, you discover sameness. And if you've got any sameness, it's hard, but it's hard to practice with, because where is it? But anyway, if you practice compassion with sameness, you'll discover, oh, there's difference in the sameness. So that's part of our 
Buddha activity. Right in the light, there's darkness. Right in the darkness, there's light. Right in the principle, there's the phenomena. Right in the phenomena, there's principle. Phenomena you can perceive. Not can, that, that's what phenomena are. It's something you can perceive. And phenomena, which are perceivable and different, are completely included in the principle, which is the same, and vice versa. The principle of sameness is present in all different phenomena. Sometimes I, I feel like people just look like, what's he talking about? But today you look like, I completely understand you. <laughs> This thought is not separate from Buddha activity. Another thought is, I want to weave this thought into Buddha activity. This unique thought, whatever it is, I want to, I want to integrate this with Buddha activity. I want to remember that teaching. That, that's a, I call it, that's a phenomena. That's a perception. And I want my perceptions to be into, I want to practice with my perceptions in such a way that they become into, in, integrated and intimate with what is not a perception. Because perceptions are all different. And I want all my differences to be integrated with sameness of all phenomena. And that thought, I want to use that thought that way too. And so the way to use that thought is be compassionate with that thought, because that thought is also, like all, the sameness of all thoughts is they're all calling for compassion. And responding to the call uses the particular to reveal the universal. So if I have the thought I could have the thought, I may have harmed someone, for example. Or I could have had the thought, and <clears throat> I don't know if I harmed them, but I certainly was mean. I don't know, I don't know if that hurt them, but, I, but I, cer I certainly wasn't kind to them. I wasn't thinking of their welfare. I was only thinking of me. And I'm amazed how selfish and you know, unkind I was. And if I hurt them, all the worse all the more terrible. Some people, <laughs> you're mean to them and it doesn't bother them. They just, they just they realize you're asking them for compassion and they, just, they observe your cruelty with compassion. So you don't necessarily hurt everybody you're trying to hurt. Which is kind of nice. That there's a, some people around who when you try to hurt them, they just go, I know what you're really asking for. <laughs> and I'm giving it to you. You don't want me to strike back. Like some people say, I don't want to talk to you, and I don't want you to listen to me. Brackets. But I want you to listen to that. <laughs> Did you say you don't want me to listen to you? Yes. <laughs> anyway, when I think of the cruel things I do, I don't beat myself up for it. I don't praise myself for it either. 
I just contemplate the horror of my selfishness and the amazement that I could be so petty and selfish. I, 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 I'm generous towards it because I feel that that's the way to find the life in it and find encouragement not to do that anymore. And also, if I finally feel free of the, all the mean things I've done, if I'm really free, then I would welcome you asking me about all the mean things I've done. But we do have, all of us have been unskillful and being compassionate to our own unskillfulness helps us be compassionate to other people's unskillfulness. Which again, people keep asking, how can I be compassionate to these monsters? I don't know, but that's what's, the monsters are calling you for compassion. And, and they're monsters because they, they haven't gotten what they asked for. And they're, they're getting more and more monstrous until they get it. I, I, just, I, don't, I, just, I don't see any other way than giving compassion to the monsters to have them, like, retire. But I'm not trying to get them to stop. I'm trying to, you know, hear the Dharma by being compassionate to them. And same with my own terrible past actions. I, I, they're calling for compassion. They're not calling for cruelty. However, if I if, if my past actions are, do get cruelty, then I want to be compassionate to that cruelty, too, that came towards my past actions. And I say, well, I did those bad things and I got punished for it, but I, at least I said thank you for the punishment. That's just, you know, I wasn't cruel to the punishment I got from my past actions, but I'm not myself administering punishment. I'll let you, you guys can do that. And you might tell me, we want you to punish yourself. And I might say, I hear you. I'm sure. listening. And I, I have not agreed to do that yet. A part of compassion is being ethical. And when you're practicing, when you're trying to be compassionate, part of your work is to be ethical with beings. And part of being ethical with beings is for them to call you into question about your compassion. So you think you're being compassionate, mommy or daddy, but I have a question about that. And uh, if, you, if in your heart or your mind you feel like, you know, no, mommy doesn't get questioned. Now you, may, you may not tell the child that, that, that how much questioning you're up for, but in your heart you may feel like, if this person who I'm trying to take care of wants to question me forever, I want to be up for that. Because this is, this is compassion to be, to be questioned. So I, I feel you're calling me to be compassionate. I feel good about responding to your call. And if you have questions about me the way I'm doing it, I need you to give them to me to deepen the compassion which you're asking for. We need people to question our compassion 
in order for our compassion to fully bloom. If you just administer it, nobody ever asks any questions. Something's missing in your compassion practice. Like, of course, some people, people say, well, the reason why nobody calls you into question is because they're afraid of you. Your compassion is so frightening <laughs> that nobody wants to say, excuse me, ask a question. <laughs> Which reminds me of, you know, somehow Woody Allen is like maybe the patron saint of New York City. <laughs> you know, I know he has his problems, but anyway. One of the movies that he made, uh, he, he was a bank robber, but he, he was a Woody Allen bank robber, so of course he was very unskillful and got caught pretty Im immediately and sent to prison. <clears throat> One of those prisons where they have these striped suits. And uh, so he's in, he's in the prison orientation program. <laughs> There's this head guard, a person much bigger than Woody, about three times his size. And then he has a whole bunch of other guards who are even bigger behind him with weapons in their hands. And he says, uh, if, you guys, uh, <laughs> if you guys behave yourself, things will go pretty well here. But if they don't, it's kind of like, you can imagine what's going to happen to you if you don't go along with this program? Now, he doesn't go into detail, but you can just feel that it would be really violent and cruel if you did not do what they told you to do. And then he says, any questions? Compassion, a little bit of compassion there. Any questions? And Woody Allen's <laughs> hand goes up. <laughs> And the guard says, what? And he says, do you think it's OK to pet on a first date? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that question helped the guard, disarmed him. I feel very compelled in all due respect yeah. to say that Woody Allen is not the patron saint of New York City. Well, I welcome your, that, you kind of called me in a question there. Thank you. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, he did make some good contributions to New York, even though he did some other, what are you going to call them, actions. Some of his stories, I think, really helped New York. So, a lot of people who have done, well, let's just say questionable things, have also done good things. And some of his stories, I think, are very helpful. That's the way I felt before I heard about some of his other stories. But I still think that a person can do good things and then forget and slip into unskillful behavior. So when I say patron saint, I mean the things, some of these stories he told, I think, are really helpful to New Yorkers and Americans. But I don't say that some of the other things he did, which seem to be unskillful and harmful, I don't, I don't, I want to acknowledge those too. So thank you. And thanks for calling me into a question respectfully. That's a good way to ask questions, respectfully.
But if no one can ask any questions respectfully, still, I still, you know, if nobody had any respectful ways of asking, I still would need somebody to ask questions <laughs> of my behavior. But it, it, it actually helps me if, if the person respectfully says that this questions my ethics. It, it helps me to listen. It's a little easier to listen. So, <clears throat> but if you can't find a respectful way to do it, do it the other way. <laughs> Because people do need to be questioned. Yes? Um, it's Compassionate people need to be questioned. Um, if, if you want to talk about something and you've made it clear you do, and somebody doesn't want to talk, and you feel like there's a need for it, um, the question of like ill will, like I feel like I know it's Buddha behavior to undo ill will internally and not need a conversation or to have, um, and I even know it's potentially possible somebody might perceive my inability, which I don't believe, but to be uh, able to have a conversation. But it seems like lots of the problems in the world are crying out for conversation, and it's easy to feel hung up that I can't move completely forward with my Buddha unfolding without relationship, without having that. So what do you do if, if you feel like there's been trauma or triggering and can't quite get over it without other people's participation? I almost completely agree with what you just said. Except for? I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, the last part, I would say, somebody told me also, maybe two years ago, the topic of the retreat was conversation. So to say that we're fundamentally Buddha activity is, could be rephrased as we're fundamentally Zazen, which could be rephrased as we're fundamentally a conversation. Without conversation with others, we cannot realize what we are. I cannot realize what I am by myself, only in, because what I am is a conversation. So like Connor asked, you know, why do I have to practice? We are, we are a calling and a listening. We are a conversation. But if we don't practice conversation, we don't realize we're a conversation. <clears throat> so I agree with you. We cannot realize Buddha activity without conversation because Buddha activity is conversation. So what about people who do not want to have a conversation? Well, I know this young man, <clears throat> and uh, his grandparents love him so much. They adore him. And one of his grandparents tried to have a conversation with him. And he really did not want to have a conversation. It was just too much for him. Because the, the way that the grandparent brought up the conversation was touching on some things which are very deep and tender in him. And he just did not want to go there. It just like, it was like too deep. If we say, how you doing, man? He's like, he can handle that. 
but he's very sensitive, and he does not want a lot. He doesn't sometimes, but sometimes he does not want people who love him to ask him questions about his feelings. And not only does he not want it, but he gets upset even being asked. So the conversation is: I want to. I love you, and I'm interested in the depths of you. I have questions for you about those depths. <clears throat> and you're telling me this is too much. That's the way conversations sometimes go, is one of the people in the conversation is saying, you're going too deep for me now. And then to listen to that and to understand that we are being called, the person's calling to us to help them go deep, but not now. And they want to see, can I stop you from going deep? Can I say, that's too deep for me, and will you listen to that? That's so, for somebody to say, I don't want to have a conversation, may be today's contribution to the conversation. And, that, and then we need to be compassionate to them rejecting our sincere interest and love for them, to want to know more about them, and to want them to know more about us, and to have a really meaningful conversation. We really want that. We really think it'd be good for both of us. And they're saying, not now. And that hurts, probably. And then we practice compassion with the pain we feel when we offer ourselves for conversation, and the person either can't stand it, or is too agitated to be present for it, or mistakes the offer as an attack, and so on and so forth. This is all basically the same thread that goes into the fabric today. But it's a difficult thread. So you're right, we, have, we need to have conversation in order to realize Buddha activity, because that's what Buddha activity is. But part of Buddha activity is some people say, I don't want any of your Buddha activity. Get out of my face. And then how do you handle that? How can you listen to that cry? Here's a cry of compassion. Get out of my face. Brackets. Please listen to me with compassion. Tell you I don't want to talk to you, etc. All these challenging ways of saying, be compassionate to this too. And I'm saying, there's, I'm saying, in reality, there's no exceptions. Everybody wants that from us. But the way they ask is infinitely varied. But it's always in that all those varied ways, it's always the same. They're saying, let's have a profound Buddha activity. Let's practice zazen together. Be compassionate to me. Teach me how to be compassionate to you. Because I want to be compassionate, but I don't know how to do it. You have to help me. And if you think you do know how to do it, you need me to help you get over that. Because you do not know how to do it without my help. So even though I'm calling for compassion, I also know you don't know how to, I need to help you. So I call you. 
and then I and then I call you on the way you respond to me, and so on. And you're calling me, and you call me on the way I respond to your call. This is the conversation that opens the door to Buddha activity and practices it. So we can practice it. We are practicing it even before we realize it. Eight more minutes. That's a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, yesterday you were uh, talking about pivoting. So um, when I find myself in darkness or um, oh, isolation um, and um, in, in the suffering, um, is it enough um, just to pivot towards um, the light or my, just to set the intention. Um, well, when you, when you said, is it enough to pivot, you moved. You moved your body. So the pivoting occurs without mo- in stillness. You don't have to move to go from dark to light. So when you have darkness in your life, the teaching is, Right in that darkness, there's light. But if you, move in a, even a, if you move even a little bit to get the light that's in the darkness, you miss it. So when you're, ha- when you're down, the teaching is there's a pivot there, but you don't have to move to wake up to the pivot. Matter of fact, if you do move, you're kind of saying that it's not there. So right in, the, right in the darkest moments, there's light. And if you're still and listen to that teaching and be compassionate to the darkness, not trying to get it to be a little bit lighter. So it actually says in our text, in our poem, right in darkness there's light, but don't try to see it as light. Don't move to discover the teaching. The teaching's already here. And if you're sitting there looking at the darkness and hearing the teaching, there's light in there, then you still have to take care of yourself. You have to be kind to yourself while you're sitting there in the darkness, not turning away from it, not touching it. And then you, you oh, there's the light. And then, then another teaching comes and says, right in that light, there's darkness. So again, we, we, we remember stillness, and when we remember stillness, we also then can remember the teaching. We don't have to go someplace else to discover the light in the dark. But we tend to, we tend to think we need to turn in order to realize a pivot. The, pivots, the pivot is in stillness. No, yeah, nobody, nobody's in control of the pivot. The pivoting is the nature of reality. It's of the nature of reality is that sameness and difference include each other. You don't have to turn the sameness to get the difference or turn the difference to get the sameness. You don't have to reach into the darkness to get the light. It's right there already. You need to be compassionate to the darkness. You need to be still with the darkness. You need to observe it clearly 
So you're still and alert, and compassion is helping you be still and alert, because it's sometimes difficult to be here, right? And you're, re you're set for revelation. And also, you're not in control of the time of delivery. Yeah. <laughs> and you're compassionate with that. You're patient with, I don't know if this is ever going to happen, but I'm doing the right thing. And, and also, this is what I'm doing, and I want to have conversations with people about it. So then you tell me that, and I say, yeah, that you're on the, you know, this is good. And can I ask you questions in the future about how you're doing this? You say, yeah. So it's, it's like, today it's okay, and tomorrow you get questioned. That's part of like being there for revelation. So it's getting close to the time. How many, is it one minute left? Two minutes. Four minutes. So should we, yes? Okay, the big four. <laughs> um, so it sounds like a lot of this face-to-face uh, um, conversation and listening um, yes. can be profoundly uh, humbling, I think. Yes. So, um, just to uh, maybe, for anybody who might be confused, I don't know. Um, how would you, uh, just to clarify the, the difference between um, Versus, um, Clarify the what? The difference between that kind of humility that comes from listening and conversation. Humility? Um, with, let's say, subservience or servility. Like, how would you... Humility and what? Um, like, servility or subservience. Like, how would you... Subservience? How would you define it? Like, how is it the difference between that? The, the humility that comes from listening. Okay. Could you hear her question? So she's in a con she's in conversation, and she gets this wave of humility coming on. Okay. What? Okay. And so, what to do? What to do about the humility? Is the humility something to take care of? Yes. So when humility comes, it's also calling for compassion. And the humility is listening to you. Because you're calling for compassion too. And I would say, you, you seem to be alluding to some danger in the neighborhood of, of humility, which I think you called yeah, maybe, um, subservience. Maybe just, yeah, yeah. Just here. So, the, so the, when there's humility, there's, uh, I would say humility, uh, I would say real humility, genuine humility, does not try to get rid of fear. And I would also say, here's the good part in the two minutes we have, that genuine humility does not try to get rid of fear, and genuine humility can stand up in the middle of fear and say, could we have a conversation? And it can ask for the conversation humbly but with a lot of courage. Humility goes very well with courage. And if you've got some humility without courage, I'll just say for now, 
We can talk about it more later. Here it is. Genuine humility has a partner called courage. I humbly will stand up to all the suffering in the world and welcome it. That's my aspiration. I want to be a great, fearless, compassionate being. And I'm humble. Because this is a huge job. And I'm just this little practitioner. I'm just going to do a little bit. But I'm going to keep doing it. And I'm never going to quit. That's my vow. And if fear comes around that humility, fine. If pride comes around the humility, right in humility, there's pride. Right in pride, there's humility. But humility, the kind of humility that discovers the pride in itself, is a courageous humility. So I'm humble, but I also have the courage to be ready that there might be some arrogance in my humility. Or you may say, I'm feeling really humble, and I, and I might say, can I ask you a question? Can I call your humility into question? <laughs> and you might say, yes. And I might, say, I might say to you, I don't think your humility is really genuine. I think it's a cover. And you might say, thank you. And that goes with being humble, to be questioned goes with being humble. Being ethical goes with humble. And arrogance doesn't exactly go with, with being, being ethical, but questioning arrogance does go with being ethical. So if you're humble, you're, you're, I think you're willing, you're open to be questioned. But if it's really high quality humility, you're open. And if you're, you can also be afraid of what people are going to find out about you, and say, oh, I can work with that too. Yeah, I think, again, not to be open to questioning is kind of like arrogance in charge now. And humility, I think, can help us be ethical. But not the humility which is like, oh, I can't even be ethical. You know, I can't handle people's questions. Leave me alone. Humility should help us be able to deal with people questioning us, which we need to have a conversation. And humility isn't exactly the same as, oh, here's a big conversation and it's too much for me. It's more like, oh, here's a big conversation and I need help. I can't have a conversation by myself, so please help me. And like, if you could feel really humble telling people, I need your help. I need your compassion. That could really be a humble request, a statement. But it's not like, I need your help to do something I can never, that I, that's too much for me. I need your help to do what I can do. I need to, your help to realize who I really am. And I'm humble about this great work of realizing what we are together. How's that working? Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.